You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. All right, everyone, I'd like to uh, invite you to uh, find your Bibles or your Bible apps, and we're going to be reading from uh, Matthew uh, 5, verses 1 through 12, and uh, I'd like to invite you to stand if you're able. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for, though, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can take a seat. With the time that we have uh, remaining, we are going to, we are actually beginning a new uh, series this week. Uh, do we have, yeah, isn't that great? A new humanity, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, a new humanity is the name of the series that we're starting, and we are going to be walking over these next few months, should take us all the way through the summer, through um, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, now, some of you might be wondering, why is it called the Sermon on the Mount? Well, the title tells us exactly why. It's a sermon, wait for it, that took place on a mount. So when people were naming these sections of, of scripture, they didn't always really spend a lot of time on it and figuring out um, Sermon on the Mount. Um, the same people who named this section named Hot, time, hot Tub uh, Time Machine, I think, and uh, possibly Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. It's exactly what it is, is, is in the title. So this is the Sermon on the Mount. It takes us from chapter five all the way through to the end of chapter seven. But this is unlike any other sermon you will ever read. And therefore, we're called to uh, approach this sermon unlike any other sermon. Well, I don't mean this sermon. I mean Jesus' sermon. Although that's not a bad idea either. Uh, it was a, a sermon given to Jesus' disciples, those who had gathered around him and said, we are all in, who had begun to follow him. The crowd that had begun to gather around the, the initial uh, closer friends. And, and this group that had been walking around with Jesus, and who just previously, in, in the end of chapter four, had been now witnessing miracles. And so if you were one of these people, kind of on the outer circle, trying to follow and figure out who Jesus is, you'd have a handful of questions. Who is this man? Who is this man who's, who speaks the way he does? Who is this man who heals people the way that he does? This is more than just some three-point sermon. And there's nothing wrong with three-point sermons. I just want to clarify that. Some of my best friends can write three-point sermons. But anyway, 
This is unlike any other sermon you will sit through. This is a proclamation of a new humanity that Jesus wants to bring about. It's a kind of, uh, a kind of inaugural speech. This is what my kingdom looks like. This is what humanity looks like when my kingdom breaks into their reality. And it's a, it's, it's a call. It's an invitation to you and I what it looks like to live in God's kingdom. There's some things to notice about this sermon before we, we dive into the actual content of, of this morning's. Uh, some of the things to notice about the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, unlike all the prophets in the Old Testament, all the prophets in the he- Hebrew Scripture, Jesus never says, thus says the Lord. Jesus never says, Yahweh proclaims, or I speak for Yahweh. He speaks on his own authority. Jesus never has to say, um, yeah, okay, I think this. He always speaks. He speaks directly as the voice of God. His words are nothing less than the words of God, and the crowd felt it. In fact, uh, you're not supposed to do this, but if you jump to the end of the sermon, if you jump to the end of the sermon on the mount, it says in verses, uh, we'll read verses 24 through to 29. Says, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine. So this is how he's capping off what we're going to walk through this summer. So we need this in mind as we begin. If everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, he's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. And then this is, this is the response of the crowd. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and then ouch to their local teachers, and not as their teachers of the law. <laughs> He spoke with power and authority, not like all the teachers they'd heard in the past, not like all the sermons they'd heard in the past. He spoke with authority. He spoke to his disciples. He spoke to the crowd, and he speaks to you and I with authority. And we recognize a few things as we step into this sermon, this this understanding of a, a new humanity shaped by the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' kingdom means a new kind of law. It means a new kind of law, meaning it's law, meaning it should be obeyed. These are not, these are not the suggestions on the mount. This is is a sermon that is meant to convict us deep down. When we think of law, if you, if you're familiar with the, the, the Hebrew story, the, the, the story of the Israelites in the old Testament, when we, we look at the Hebrew scriptures, we think of Moses and we think of the 10 commandments. We think of the first five books of the Bible. And so did Jesus' followers as they followed him. So did did Matthew, who wrote the gospel. 1,500 years earlier, a man named Moses led God's people out of slavery, led them and introduced them to the only God. He was a representative of a new life, uh, a a new land. He was introducing to them a new freedom, a new way of seeing themselves. And so when people began to approach Jesus, when they saw the way he spoke and the things he did, they would have been trying to figure out who is this guy. And as Jesus walks up a mountain and begins to instruct them, that would have seemed familiar to them, most likely. 
They would have remembered the story in Exodus 24, verse 12, where it says that Jesus, uh, or sorry, that the, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here and I will give you tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. So Matthew is making it very clear as he writes this gospel that, that Jesus is a type of Moses. He's doing something new, just like Moses did. He goes up a mountain and he has instructions for people. But what we find is this. Jesus' dig, law digs a lot deeper than Moses' law did, than, than what God gave to Moses. The, the thing about the Ten Commandments is we can fake them. The thing about the Ten Commandments is, 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 is that you can, you can get by by just following them and have your heart unchanged. That won't do with the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus invites us into is a complete overtaking of who we are and how we perceive the world, how we perceive ourselves. And this is not new. Well, I think I mentioned this last week at our Easter service. Um, uh, one scholar says that with Jesus, God did something new, did something surprising, just like he always said he would. I love that phrase. <laughs> so this, but this day, this, this proclamation, this new idea that Jesus is bringing of this new kingdom coming down from heaven is not a new idea. It's something they would have heard about before. There's echoes of it in the Hebrew scriptures. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31, it says this. It says, the days are coming. This is hundreds of years before Jesus declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they had broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Amen. So Jesus comes with this sermon on the mount and he comes like a prophet surgeon. <laughs> he cuts right through moving beyond outside obedience and heads straight to the heart. And because this new law is coming, it also this this. Jesus' kingdom demands a new posture. We, we can't come and just walk by Jesus' sermon here like many of the other things that we just want to, yeah, got it, check, 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 got it, got it, got it. Got it, got it, need it, got it. This is, we don't come with a scrolling posture. Oh, that's good, Jesus, that's good. I like that. Yeah, that's a good image. Yeah, I like that. That's not how we come to Jesus. That's not how we come to this surgeon prophet who wants to work on our heart, who wants to be a heart surgeon for us. The, the posture of those intently listening and learning and leaning in to what he wants to say, to sit at the feet of their teacher. It was a sign that your attention was fixed on the speaker, that you were intently listening. You, you see this throughout Jesus' ministry, that people would sit at his feet and just wait to listen. We have, I've explained several times, we have two of the dumbest dogs in the world in my house. Um, but anytime you eat, anytime someone pulls out food, you have all the attention of the dog. If you're eating, they are staring you right in the face. And you can try to dance over here and try to get their attention. They'll be like, yeah, whatever. And, with, and they, they not, they're no good at hiding it either. It looks like love on the outside, but they're licking their lips and they're staring right at the bowl. I know, I know what they're after. There's nothing that can draw their attention away. They are fixed 
on you, hoping that something is going to drop that they can take in. That's how we're supposed to listen to Jesus. When Jesus speaks, when he speaks to his disciples, they are sitting on the hillside and they are listening. To be sitting in front of a teacher is to say, just, just give me anything. I just, well, anything you drop, I want to take it. I want to consume it. I want it to sustain me. That's how we're meant to listen. In Luke 10, we, many of us know the story of, of Mary and Martha that Jesus comes to visit. And, and Mary is content to just sit and listen. And Martha is busy running all over the place, trying to do important things, good things. But Jesus looks at, Mar- at Martha and Mary and she says, what? Mary has picked the better thing. Sit at my feet and listen. He makes it clear who picked the right one. As we approach these words of, of Jesus, that, and throughout the series, not just today, we are invited to sit and to listen. And maybe listen like may, never before. To the words and imagine, what if Jesus really meant this stuff? What would it look like in my life if I didn't, wasn't trying to make it metaphors? If I wasn't trying to dismiss it? And, I actually, and what will this look like? What, how would the kingdom break through in my life? Break through in my family? Break through in my church? If I took Jesus seriously on these things, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to listen. And I'm going to take every morsel that drops from his mouth. And because of that... Because these words are so important and we're, we're called to this, to sit and listen, the kingdom of the, the, Jesus' kingdom also means that we're called to a new kind of obedience. And this needs to be clear from the beginning in this series. Do we love him enough to obey? Do we love him enough to, I mean, that's plainly put. The, the words of Jesus are, are recorded so that we can obey them, so that they can flood over us and overtake us. Matthew makes it clear throughout the gospel that obedience is the goal. Not memorizing new scripture, not knowing, oh, I remember that story, and learning the story so you can talk about it in discussion. The end line here is obedience. Obedience is the proof that we love. I have often said that when my children say, love you, dad, I'll say, obey my commands. <laughs> You laugh, but it is true. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, what does it say? It said, not everyone, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus states it plainly in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commands. It's that straightforward. Notice the order, though, and this is important. We, we, we are his, so we obey. We, we, we don't obey so that we can be his. That's important, because if we get that wrong, we, we, live, we live in shame and burden, and, and we live toward. But we obey from love, not towards it. That's our starting point. What a great starting point. <laughs> With the final effect being a new kingdom community that transforms the community around it. So as we, as we view our lives, we need to ask, has the kingdom of God broken through in, in how I see myself, how I see the world, how I see my family? Author Stanley Hauerwas sa- says it this way. He says, when he called his society together, Jesus gave its members a new way of life to live. He gave them a new way to deal with offenders by forgiving them. Let that sink in. He gave them a new way to deal with violence. By suffering. He gave them a new way to deal with money. 
by sharing it. He gave them a new way to deal with problems of leadership by drawing upon the gift of every member, even the most humble. He gave them a new way to deal with a corrupt society by building a new order, not smashing the old. He gave them a new pattern of relationship between man and, well, I should say man and woman. I think man and women is a little much, Um, (laughs) but that too. Between parent and child, between master and slave, in which was made concrete a radical new vision of what it means to be a human person. He gave them a new attitude toward the state and toward the enemy. That completely turned the world upside down. In other words, Jesus took everything that the world said, this is important. This is what you should run after. This is how you want to be perceived. This is what it means to have power. This is what it means to have prestige. Jesus said, you got that picture? And then he went, that's my kingdom. Flip it on its head and turn the world upside down by living out my kingdom and being obedient to what I've called you. I mean, if you think of the world right now, think of what we watch on the news. Think of what we scroll through. Wouldn't it be great if all that just completely reversed? I think the reversal of that would be something quite attractive. So the question for you and I as we approach this morning is some of these questions are as we come to obey. Do do I come here? Well, the question for me is, do I come here as your pastor looking to my to my shepherd to learn from my shepherd? Or am I am I simply just going to glean enough to throw you on a Sunday morning? Or am I actually going to dive in and let my my own life be transformed? Do we come here with a a posture of sitting and listening? Or are we just, okay, what else do you have for me, Jesus? Do we come anticipating or do we come yawning? Which I didn't want to use the word because now we're all going to have a hard time. Do we come ready to obey or do we come ready with excuses to go, wow, that's not what he meant. That's not what he meant. He couldn't have meant that. You know how, how I'd look in my, in my work if I lived like that? He who was obedient even to the point of death calls us to obey his words. And so with the time that we have left, I want to quickly look at the first verse here. Just the first verse we're going we're gonna to look at this morning. Or the third verse, technically, the first statement of Jesus. Matthew 5, verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Let that sink in. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It takes a brief read. It takes one quick read, even if you aren't paying attention, to see that Jesus is calling those who love him to something completely different to how we are called by the world to understand ourselves. What it means, what the world says is a good life does not start with be poor in spirit. The, the, the way that the world measures a good life and how we're meant to live that out, this does not seem to conform to that. But as we, as we take a deep dive, we notice a few things. The first is this. To be poor in spirit is an invitation to grace. To be in poor in spirit is an invitation to grace. It's interesting is that this is the beginning of the seven beatitudes. And if you haven't heard the word beatitudes, or maybe you have heard it many times and have no clue what it means, but the word beatitudes is supreme blessing. It's not just blessing, it's a supreme blessing. That's what it means. The, the word in the original Greek is actually makurios. And I know we all wanted to learn Greek. But the problem is, and this is quite consistent in, in, uh, in English, is that we don't have good enough words in English 
that to capture what is being said in the Greek. In the Greek, makurios means kind of a, a mashing together of two ideas. One is the blessing of a priest. And the second is kind of advice for guidance and wisdom from a good father. This is the way, if you want to live in wisdom and a good life, this is the path you ought to take. So it's this kind of mashing together of those two ideas. God looks on you and says, yeah, this is a blessed life. And also says to you, this is the way of wisdom. It's similar to what we see in Psalm uh, chapter one. The, the first Psalm says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. That, that's the idea. It's kind of this blessing over, but also a guidance of life that is good. It's a person who's planted firmly. Theologian and missionary Rose Dowsett, she points out that you and I, which we already recognize in here, she says this. She says, the promise of the kingdom, future, future, should say future or present, future or present, is to those who exemplify what in the world's eyes might be mistaken for weakness. But this is actually an opportunity for grace, and we'll see this as we move on. To be in poor, poor in spirit is a challenge to our treasures. Yeah, amen. You know, see how he's following? That's great. The dedication's already kicking in. <laughs> to be poor in spirit makes it clear from the beginning that Jesus is not offering a new ethic that you simply open the manual and you hit the ground running. Following Jesus begins with a letting go. Following Jesus always begins with a letting go. To pronounce yourself Poor in spirit is to say, there is nothing that I cling to that I actually need. I just need more of you. Please give me more of yourself. There must be an emptying before there can be a filling. The problem is our, is our hands are too full. We're clinging on to so many things we think we need. There's no room left for us to receive more Jesus. In some ways, to be poor in spirit is the key to everything that follows. It's, it's what opens our life for everything else in these beatitudes. But we are, we are often trapped where we, we are simply, we're, we're trapped where we are simply because we're clinging so strongly to the present. There's a, some of you may have heard the story before. It's called, it's called the South Indian monkey trap. And what the South Indian monkey trap is, is that they would put out a, a, a coconut and they'd hollow it out and they'd put a banana in it with a space just, just big enough for a monkey to put his hand in. And then they would chain that coconut to a tree. And the monkey would come up, stick his hand in, grab the banana, but once his hand was grasped around the banana, he couldn't pull it out. And he would not let go because he did no FOMO. He did not want to miss out or miss out on banana. I don't know. Full, full mob? I don't know. Anyway, so he couldn't, he was, so he would just stand there. People, you could approach the monkey and he would not let go and run because he did not want to miss out on the banana. He would not release it. And because he would not, he doesn't release it, he is stuck there. Can't escape, but unwilling to let go of the present. To be poor in spirit is to challenge whatever you are currently treasuring. Whatever you are firmly holding on to, even though godly wisdom would tell you it's, it's keeping you stuck where you are. So 
To be poor in spirit is a challenge to our treasures. So think on that right now. Think on it. What is it that you have used to define yourself? What is it that you have said, if I do not have this, I, I don't have an identity. If I don't have this, I don't know what I would do. The only one that should fulfill that statement is Christ and Christ alone. Only he has the words of life. So it's a challenge to our treasure to let go. And lastly, to be poor in spirit is a confirmation of deep faith. To live out a life of poverty and spirit is to confirm deep faith. To proclaim not just with words on a Sunday, but with our entire lives. To be poor in spirit is to ask the question, do you trust him? Do you trust him enough to let go of everything that you call yours? To give up on identifying yourself with all of your accomplishments, everything you can put on the wall, everything you can post about. Are you willing to give it up and be impoverished so that he can fill you up? To give up on the fear of being taken advantage of, that's a big one. Ultimately, it's to magnify Christ in our hearts and minds so he overtakes our vision uh, to, to make more of him in our lives. So here's the upside downedness, not a real word, the upside downedness of the Beatitudes and this one specifically. And it shouldn't surprise us. God loves to hang out with humble people. God loves to hang out with those who are poor in spirit. He wants to give us more of himself. See, we've been taught that striving, self-promotion, uh, that, that that gives us gain, that that gives us the good life. It doesn't. It carves us out and empties us. It, it empties us of ourselves and it, it enslaves us with whatever we've got, our, whatever we're grabbing inside the coconut. It, it pushes us away from grace because we're pronouncing with our lives, we don't need grace. We can pull this off ourselves with whatever we can accomplish. But there's this great statement that Isaiah makes. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, verse 15, he says this. Does he? 57, 15. Did I say something else? Anyway. Isaiah said this. He said, for this is what the high and exalted one says. This is what God says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He says, I want to revive your spirit, but you're too busy convincing yourself your spirit doesn't need my help. You know who would have never had the nerve to say, I got this. You know who would have never had the nerve to say, oh, I'm, I'm rich in spirit. It would have been Isaiah. Isaiah had an experience much like, like John in Revelation, Moses in the burning bush. Isaiah had an experience where he stood, had a vision, an apocalyptic vision of the throne room of God. Burning with light, surrounded by heavenly creatures, indescribable color. And his response is this in Isaiah 6, 5. He says, woe to me. I cried for I am ruined. In the, in the Hebrew, the I am ruined is, literally means I'm falling apart in pieces. Pieces of me are falling off right now. Like a bad zombie movie. 
It says, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. In other words, the more I experience the greatness of God, the more of his glory I see, the more of myself gets emptied and it gets filled with him. And it's, it's those moments of stepping out into creation and going, who, who is man that you are mindful of him? It's, it's looking at the sunset. It's, it's reading the scripture and, and letting it not just cover our head, but dig deep. We consume it and dig deep into our hearts and take over our minds where we understand how impoverished we are. There's no way, way Isaiah went away from that moment and went grabbing bananas and coconuts anymore. There's no way he just went on about his business. He, understand, he understood who he was and who God was and how in need of God's filling he was. He becomes one of the greatest prophets in the history of Israel. You think that was built on his own confidence? Or do you think that every day he remembered that amazing day of great clarity <laughs> of who God was and who he was? To be poor in spirit is the opposite of nervous and overpowered or, or taken advantage of. It's empowering because your poverty has been filled with Jesus. You, you're, you're filled with the kingdom of heaven. Your future glory has already taken root in your present life. See, we, we, we often think of all of these promises as something that's going to come one day. That's a misreading of what Jesus says here. What does he say? The kingdom is yours. Not it's going to be. It is yours. So you, you're, not, you're not losing who you are. It is a fullest realization of who you are. It is taking place now. Read those words clearly. He does not say, for they will one day get the kingdom of heaven. He says, there's is the kingdom of heaven. There are seven beatitudes and they're framed by two present statements. It starts with that the, it is it is. It belongs to you now. It is present assurance that you are in the kingdom of God. Yes, there is blessing that's going to come in the future for the faithful. But we often fail to realize that the kingdom is wanting to break through now. So do we want to experience the kingdom breaking through now? To have it break? Do we want the kingdom to break into our families? Do we want it to, to break in in work do you want it to break in in our marriage, in our, in our singleness, in our brokenness, whatever it is? Do we want to be blessed, supremely blessed in the way, those areas by the kingdom of God breaking through in our lives? Where we're made more wise, strengthened, unshaken. Wealthy are those who are poor in spirit. For theirs is now the kingdom of heaven. Do you want to be rich? In the kingdom? Do you want to have more of Jesus flowing into you? Hymn writers have been trying to restate this forever, and one of the greatest is from Rock of Ages Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, helpless look on thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior. Or I die. Give me more of you. I'll give it all up for you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this invitation to something 
philosophers and political writers have been trying to figure out for millennia. How do we bring peace? How do we structure a society so that it, it, it brings about the best for everybody? Jesus, you proclaimed it in the Sermon on the Mount. It is an inworking of your spirit. It is an inworking of your kingdom bursting out of your people. And so, God, I pray that as, as many of us have, have consumed and lived out many of the tools that the world has given us on how to ha- be filled, how to be, have the, the good life, how to be good people, you proclaim to us something drastically different. And I pray we would trust you. I pray we would trust you as we give up our rights, as we give up what it means to be esteemed or being given uh, prestige, to respond to violence with peace. To response with, with scathing words, with vitriol, to respond with words of love and compassion and grace and mercy. And we don't, we don't pray to a God who doesn't get it. We pray to a God with scars. We pray to a God who turned his cheek. We pray to a God who experienced what we walked through. Yet we pray to a God who was obedient even to the point of death and not just any death, death on a cross. And so may we follow your path. May we follow your path of giving everything up to ultimately meet you in glory. May we trust you enough to give those things up to you this morning. All the things that we hold on to and claim they will give us hope and identity and peace. We release them. Fill up that space in us, Jesus. And may we live lives that proclaim your kingdom with our words, with our lives, how we interact with those in our families, in our workplace, and those in our community. We give our whole selves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.